0: You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Now hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you were with us last week, we started a brand new sermon series. Um, called Cultivate. We're, we're talking about what it means to grow both deep and wide as a church, what it means for our, our roots to sink down deep in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know God's word, to love his word, to, to mature through the, the absorption of God's word at the same time, realizing that God has called us to go make disciples. He's called this church to be an evangelical, a gospel-proclaiming family that that God intends to use that family to bring more people into the family of God. And so really the aim of this sermon series is to help us as a church refine and reinvigorate that disciple-making culture. And last week we started out with, with the scripture that was read right at the beginning of, of our baptism liturgy this morning the, in the Great Commission. When Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And so this sermon series really, if you're talking about our solar system, that passage is the sun that everything revolves around. Everything orbits around that passage and each week we're going to take a step in. We're gonna zoom in a little bit each week to ask the question, what exactly does that entail? What does it? What do we mean when we say go make disciples? What does Jesus mean when he commands us to go make disciples and, and what, does, what does it look like to be a disciple maker. Now, one of the things right from the jump that we must realize is that becoming a disciple of Jesus is no small thing. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is not a minor change to your life. It's it's not merely saying a prayer so you'll get into heaven it's not merely a doctrinal affirmation and it is not merely a logistical edit to your weekly rhythms where now your Sunday mornings suddenly get more busy, right? You've got church to come to. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is a total and comprehensive overhaul to your life. The whole thing changes. Your life now transforms now if you don't want your life to change at all, I would recommend not following Jesus. Because the primary thing that Jesus wants to do in your life is bring change to you. In fact, he and it, the, the, the change that Jesus brings is so profound that, that even in our liturgy this morning we heard, it, it uses language of new life. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse seven says, um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is go- gone the new has come. It is such a profound change. And it's not just a change that takes place on the mo- moment of your salvation, the moment where God gives you a new heart to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus intends to bring you on a lifelong saga of change, of gospel change, where he tr- intends to transform you from one degree of glory To the next. In this process, God is, is taking the gold and with the refiner's fire, it's heating up. The dross is getting burnt out. So at the end of this sanctification process, all that stands is the most glorious and pure gold. See, that's what God is intending to do in your life. God is intending to change you, to give you a new life, new identity, new way of being in the world. In other words, Jesus changes Everything. Everything. Jesus changes everything. Now, this doesn't mean that your personality gets scrubbed. This doesn't mean, when you become a new creation, it doesn't mean that, that God hits the factory reset button, and now everybody becomes boring vanilla. Vanilla. No, God has a way of, of in redemption, maintaining what makes you you, your unique personality, your distinctives, the things that are unique to you, while at the same time bringing radical transformation. And and discipleship is, is the process where Jesus cultivates this new life that you've received right where you're at. It's where God does this this inside-out work of transformation, of changing you. As your faith is in Jesus, he transforms you to become more like Jesus. And so we might say discipleship is essentially learning to live in this new life. Discipleship is learning to live this new life and teaching others how to do the same. And so today with our, our passage, I, I want to focus on two things as we talk about discipleship. As we talk about the commission to go and make disciples, I want to talk about, one, the pattern of this new life. And two, the power for this new life. Those two things. So we're going to start with the pattern of this new life. And by that, I mean the process of discipleship. And if I boil it down into the simplest of terms, of course, we can elaborate on this, we can expand on this, but if I were to boil it down into two simple steps, here's what they would be. Step one would be this. Step one of the pattern of learning to live would be to die. To learn to live, you must learn to die. To die. This is what Paul is saying in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says this I have been crucified with Christ. What is that crucifixion? What is that? That's death. I have have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, this may seem counterintuitive to us, right? What are you saying? In order to live, I must learn to die, I must be crucified. But this is very much the upside down. This is very much the backwards way that God tends to do things. In fact, last week we saw um, the the way up is down. We we talked about Jesus who was exalted above every other name. That Jesus was the one who was given all authority. Why? Why did God the Father grant all authority? Why did God exalt Jesus' name? Because Jesus went low. Because Jesus humbled himself. And so we saw that the way up with God is really down first, and God exalts the humble. And so this pattern really works out in this way um, as well. The, the, the way to live then is to die. Now, this is, this is clear in um, John 12. We, we, we've taken a break from John 12, but I just can't help jumping back, or excuse me, the whole gospel of John um, for the sermon series. I just can't help jump it back into the gospel of John because it's just loaded with all kinds of things that are, are helpful for us in our understanding of discipleship. But Jesus says this in John 12 verses 24 through 25 he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. We're, we're seeing this pattern. That in order to live, in order for that, that uh, harvest to come, there must first be a death. Now, this is true in many, many ways. This is true, and I think we know this intuitively. God has designed us to, to kind of think with how the world works best. You, this is true in the case of marriage. If you want a happy marriage, you must die to selfishness, right? In order order to live into that glorious marriage that God intends for all married couples to enjoy, you must die to self, you must die to even marriage. There has to be a purity, a devotion. But to have that, you have to die to self. This is true with health as well, physically. your, Your physical body health. In order to live a healthy life, you have to die to laziness. You have to die to gluttony. You have to die to drunkenness. These things are working against that ultimate telos, that ultimate end. You have to die to those things in order to live. The same is true of financial stability. If you want to have the health of being financially stable, of being a good steward, you have to die to bad spending habits. You see this, right? That the pattern of life is to die to things in order to live to something more glorious. And while this is counterintuitive, this is certainly the way that God does it. On the other side of dying acts, you will find true life. On the other side of these dying acts, you will find true life. Now, for the Christian, for the true believer, this is also true in the eternal sense, in the most significant, most profound way. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus says, this is what he's talking, um, this is at the death of his buddy Lazarus, and he's talking to Mary, Mary and he says, um, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So even in the ultimate sense, as Christians, our faith is in Jesus. When we die, when our our time on this earth elapses, that does not mean life stops. In fact, there's a more glorious life to come, a life of glory. And the reason that's true is that it is the pattern for Jesus' own life, who, who lived and died, and he was raised by God's power. The reason why this is true for us is because Jesus gave himself to this pattern. He lived, he died, and was raised again to new life, never to die again, the book of Hebrews tells us. And it's because Jesus has died. The Apostle Paul says here in Galatians 2, I have died with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, this is true. Of all Christians. This is not just true of the Apostle Paul, who, who has a unique station in God's church. This is true of all Christians. 2 Timothy 2 speaks to this, Romans 6 speaks to this. But if, if we have, in fact, died with Christ, be crucified with Christ, in, in what way is that true? In what way have we been crucified with Christ? Well, certainly not physically, because none of us were born when Christ was crucified. And though it was not a physical death with Christ, no, we were not physically crucified with him, we were crucified with him in a real and spiritual way. Now, actually, what, what the Apostle Paul, if we back up in Galatians 2 to, to verse 19 that precedes our passage, we can see uh, the Apostle Paul shedding more light on this. What exactly does he mean? He says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. He says, I have, essentially, he says, I have died, I've been crucified with Christ, I have died to the law. Now, we, we don't have enough time to really unpack the whole intent of the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, um, but really the, the entire point of, of the apostle Paul writing this letter to the church in Galatia was to dismantle a, a a very dangerous misconception that was circulating around the church. The church at that point was, was composed of, of both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And the Jewish believers, they had a, they had a deep and profound appreciation for the law of God, the Torah. Uh, the Ten Commandments and all of the other uh, the commands that God gave throughout the book of Deuteronomy. They had a love for the law. And so as the gospel was preached, what took the works of the law and they were trying to marry them together and say that in order to be saved, you must not only profess faith in Jesus Christ, but you must do the works of the law. But Paul, he, he takes great care in addressing this misconception. He says, Yes, Jesus died, but his death was so sufficient. His life, his perfect life was so sufficient that that you, all you must do to be saved is to believe in his name. Now, this is still very much a a, a Jesus plus works gospel that circulates today, where where many people have this this mindset that Jesus did 70% of the work, and it's up to me to do the other 30. Or Jesus did 51%, I've got to do 49%. In order for me to be justified, in order for me to have acceptance from God, I not only have to believe, but I have to do the right things. And what this is, this boils down to a works-based righteousness, a righteousness that, that not only depends on Jesus' work, but my work as well. That my work, this is what it says, that my work influences my status before God. The things that I do, the things that I don't do, those things bear great work, great significance as I stand before God and my, my, um, my the jurisdiction, the, 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 the judgment of God is going to depend on those things. Now, this is so pervasive that if you were to ask a nominal Christian, somebody who is a Christian in name only, what they, why they think they're getting to heaven, they would likely say, well, I think I'm getting to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm going to heaven because, you know, I've certainly done bad things, but I think I've done more good things than bad things. What we need to see is that this is simply works-based righteousness. They're pointing to what they've done. They're pointing to their successes, their wins, rather than the work, the successes of Christ. They think they've achieved God's favor by their own merit, by their own work, by their own acts. Now, you need to listen very carefully. If you believe this, If you believe your work will justify you before God, then you do not truly believe the gospel because the gospel is that by grace you have been saved through faith. This is Ephesians chapter two, another another letter that the apostle Paul wrote in verse eight. He says, for by by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, if you're looking to your works to justify yourself, they will blow back in your face. What Paul is saying here is he says, "I've I've died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul is saying that Jesus is such a strong and mighty Savior that he could do it all for me. That Jesus could perfectly keep the law that I failed to keep. That Jesus could live the perfect life that I so many times have failed to live. And his death could pay the price for my sins, a price that I cannot afford to pay in myself. Paul is pointing to the fact, I have died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus paid the price for all my sin. And not only that, but Jesus graciously gives me his righteousness. So so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my failures. He doesn't see my successes. What he sees is the perfect works of Christ. See, this is what it means to be justified. It's not me. It's not my works. Now, if we're honest about this, if we're honest, if we, if we really think about this, we have a hard time getting our minds around this, don't we? To think that Jesus could totally and absolutely justify me without any contribution from me. Be- because there's something in us that wants to be able to take credit for it. There's something in us that wants to say, like, listen, I know that Jesus, I mean, even if it's 1%, I know Jesus did 99% of the work, but man, I'm so glad I could chip in that 1% to get me elevated. Like, like we want to use our works. We want to use our own resume, our our Bible reading, our service, the kindness that we've given to other people to bolster our resume so that God would look at us differently. And, And when you're... When you're totally hands-off, when when you're when you when you come to the conclusion, man, I, I cannot do anything to justify myself. There's no way that I can dig myself out of the pit that my sin has dug me into, and to rely solely upon the person and work of Jesus, it can feel scary. Right? To totally depend on the works of Jesus, to, to, to think, man, I, I can't do anything. That, that, we're taking our hands off the reins here, off the wheel. But we must realize that the only thing that will justify you before God is faith in Jesus Christ. This is really, if you boil down the book of Galatians, this is it right here. It's all Paul wants you to know. The only way to be justified before God is to have faith in Jesus Christ. And he makes this very clear in verse 16 of chapter 20 when he says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, law will, no one will be justified. Now, just as Paul says he's been crucified with Christ, he too is also raised with Christ. This is the second step in the process, right? The first, the first pattern, the first step of the pattern of discipleship is to die, and the second, is to live, to receive the resurrection life in which Jesus gives us. You can see this in verse 20 of of Galatians 2. I know I'm jumping around a lot here. Galatians 2, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And listen, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he said, I've died with Christ, I've been crucified with Christ, but, but I didn't stay dead. God in his grace raised me to me to new life and now the life that I live, this, this, this earthly life that I live right now in real time, it's not I who lives anymore, but who's Christ who's living in me, who's living through me. See, this is the the two-fold pattern of discipleship, of of dying and being raised to this new life with Christ. Now, the the big question that follows then is what does this this new Christ-animated life look like? And by Christ-animated, I mean the fact that Christ now is living through us. What does this life look like? Now, there's gonna be some people who who say, Listen, it, because it's all grace, because God is, is so gracious and willing to forgive, it doesn't matter what you do. So just keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep go, doing the old sinful things and then confessing your sin on Sunday and then just have this pattern of, you know, you can just keep pressing on. But one of the things that the Apostle Paul makes very clear to us in in Romans chapter 6, which is another point, uh, passage that talks about this this um, death to life pattern, he th- He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What God intends for us as we receive this resurrection life, this new life in Christ, is that our lives would change. That our lives would be pointed at a new kind of standard, a new glory. Now, one of the, the difficult things about navigating Galatians 2.20 is when people hear that the apostle Paul died with Christ, that he was crucified with Christ, that he died to the law. They take that to mean that, that the law has become obsolete. And by what, what the law is, is God's standard of living, of how do you live best in the world God has designed? And so there's this misconception, if Paul died to the law, that means that the law has become irrelevant, that it's not helpful anymore, but actually, it's, it's totally opposite. When Paul dies to the law, it means he no longer uses the law to try to justify himself, but true faith makes us eager and now able to obey the law. See, without true faith, without the power, indwelling power of the Spirit, which which Paul equates to Christ now living in us, we are unable to live according to the law, but by the power of God that's at work in us, now our steps are realigned to God's command. And that means the resurrection life that Jesus gives us is now pointed toward righteous living, toward living a, a life that God deems Honorable and glorious. If you keep reading through the book of, of Romans, you, you find this, this phrase that Paul used. I love this phrase. It's called the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Obedience being being a product of true faith, that when you believe Jesus has justified me, now I begin living like that's actually true. Now this brings us to another aspect of discipleship, another aspect of dying this pattern of discipleship of, of dying to live that Paul mentions in other places. We, we've previously been talking about justification. How do you know that you're standing before God is secure, right? That once and for all judicial um, decree that you are declared righteous. Well, now there's another, there's another aspect to this. While justification is a once and for all verdict that God gives, that, that even right now in real time, though your heart is laced with sin, God declares you righteous in Christ. But in real time, we are not always living righteously. We are, we are entangled with sin. And the process of sanctification is this ongoing outworking of, of God taking away the old self the sinful ways, the ways of the world, and bringing us into his newness of life. And this is is articulated for us very clearly in Colossians chapter three. Let me me just um, read to you here. I'm actually gonna back up a little bit further than what I told the slide guide to do. I'm gonna start with with verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, so again, died to sin, I've, I've been crucified with Christ, And now you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are here on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here we see there's this this changing of mindset that takes place. That, that the old self was set on worldly things. That's why, why Paul says, hey, if you've been raised with Christ, set your, set your gaze on him who's seated with God on the heavenly things. But then it's not just an intellectual endeavor. There's actual application that flows downstream from this. Then it goes on in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Do you see that? That pattern, death to life. Because you've been given true resurrection life in Christ, there are worldly things, there are fleshly things in you in real time that need to be put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too walked of dying to live. You you lay down your life. You die to the flesh. You die to the ways of the world and then you receive new life in Christ. In other words, you you put to death the earthly things. You put to death the old self so the new self can truly live a magnificent Christ-bought life. It's because Jesus lives through us. It's because the Spirit of God now dwells within the hearts of Christians that we are able to renounce our sinful ways in an ongoing manner. In fact, this is is one of the indicators, one of the main indicators that show if we have really put our faith in Jesus or not, that if we really have received this new life that God gives us or not, if you have, then you're putting to death the old self. We're putting away the old ways, the old man, the old patterns of the world. Now this work of, of dying and living, of, of constantly examining your life, of, of being mindful, to have your mind set on the things that are above, to be aware of the work in your life that God is doing to transform you and to change you from glory to glory. This can take a lot of energy from us. A lot of bandwidth spent thinking about discipleship, of of what does it look like to honor Lord in the everyday stuff of life. This is hard stuff. This is why Jesus said to his disciples that the discipleship, like following him is, is nothing short of taking up your cross and following him. It's why the apostle Paul says, I die daily, this, this ongoing pattern of death and life. If, if you are following Jesus, this will be at the true cadence of your life too, dying to live. And I, I would even say it like this, Discipleship following Jesus is dying a million little deaths. But on the other side is a better, more glorious, more joyful life that awaits. See, we we die to our sin, we die to the old self, we're dying these little deaths, but on the other side is the glory of resurrection life. And each time we go through this process of of confessing, of repenting, of turning from our sin, of dying to our sin, or or some of the Puritans, they would call it the mortification of sin. With each act of repentance, we get a microdose of the resurrection See, one day there will be this glorious resurrection where all of the old, all of the bad, all of the tarnished stuff of us, the glory of what we are meant to be. But in the meantime, as we are working toward that end date in history, God is giving us glimpses into the resurrection, a true experience of the resurrection power. Now, I'm talking about this, I'm wrapping up here. We're talking about this primarily on an individual level right now. I'm just thinking about me, my discipleship. If I'm taking responsibility for my own discipleship, there's this pattern of dying and living, of repentance and faith. But what happens when you gather a bunch of individuals who are doing that together? What happens when when you have a whole group, a, a missional community, a group of missional communities, a church like ours that are doing this together? What happens is you get a resurrection community. A community that is defined not by our works, not by what we do, but by the work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that is now being realized in real time. And in that, a discipleship culture is produced where you have a group of Christians who are putting off the old self so the new self would come to life. The glory of the new self would be visible to all. This means... If I'm doing discipleship in the context of a missional community, that I'm not just focused on myself, I'm not just focused on my family, though those are things where you need to focus on, but, but you're focused beyond those things to help others grow as disciples of too. That they, you would help them go through the pattern of discipleship uh, of dying then to live. And here's the thing that we must, we must understand if we as a church stop dying to sin together, if we just call a truce with the way of the world, if we, we just say, you know what, it's too much to, to resist the temptation, too much to resist the noise of the outside world of what culture is telling us what's normal now. They're just trying to rewrite God's standards. And we say, you know what, we're, we're just gonna stop fighting sin. We're gonna stop dying to sin together. That means the church altogether will die. If we stop dying to sin together, the church all together dies. And so the life, the longevity, the pro- prosperity, the posterity of the church depends on this cycle, this pattern of dying and receiving the resurrection life to live. So we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Together, we must give ourselves to the work of putting to death the old man so the new man may come to life. And, and like I mentioned a moment ago, this, this sounds exhausting. It sounds exhausting, right? And it's impossible. It's impossible to do this in your own strength. You can't white-knuckle your way, just as you can't justify yourself, just as as you can't work enough so God looks at you and says, okay, you're fine now. You cannot sanctify yourself. It is a production of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it in your own strength. That's one of the things that that the Apostle Paul says in in Galatians. He says, having begun your walk by the Spirit, do you you intend to to carry it on by your own self? No, you, you must depend upon the Spirit of God to bring this about. And so we must realize that the power of discipleship, the engine, the thing that drives discipleship is not your will to do it. It's God's will for it to be done. Take a look at this. Verse 20, again, Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is because of God's love for us in Christ that God has made us able to walk into this new life. It's because Jesus Christ loves us and gave himself up for us even while we were enemies of God. It is that love that drives us. It's that love Jesus loves us. Jesus loves his people so much that his own life was laid out for it, so much that Jesus himself died for us. How can we we weigh the exorbitant value of the Son of God How can we calculate the the volumes of love that God has for us? That, That his own son would live and die for us, giving us forgiveness, bringing us into the family of God through adoption, giving us the profound satisfaction that we can say, my heart is content in the Lord and all the spiritual blessings that come. How much did that cost that we might receive it? It cost the life of the Son of God. Who loved us, Paul says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have to realize here, as Paul does, this is not a generic love. The kind of love that God has for us is not a generic kind of love. It is a very Personal love. When Paul says, he says it twice, for me. He loved me and and died for me. In fact, John Calvin says this for me is very emphatic. Like like Paul is emphasizing, like it's not just this this general thing. It's a very specific thing that, that God's love was specifically directed towards the apostle Paul. God's love is specifically directed towards us. Calvin says, it would not be enough to consider that Christ died for the salvation of the world unless each individual specifically applied to his own person the efficacy and enjoyment of that grace. So you, you don't understand the, the glory of God loving the church throughout the ages. You don't understand the glory of God loving the world that he'd give his son up for them until you understand the profundity of God loving you and the amount, and the volume, and the depth, and the breadth, and the width of God's love for us. Now, at times, it can be hard. It's like, it sounds true. I like what you're saying. But I don't necessarily feel like it's true. I don't feel God's love. I don't feel that warm Sensation. You might be thinking that in the room this morning. Maybe you're in a cold season. You just feel like your faith is stagnant. Maybe God's far off, but listen. Your feelings lie to you. Your feelings lie to you. And in those moments where you don't feel God's love, all you need to do is look to the cross. See, that that image of the Son of God giving his life, dying, being crucified for us, that can only be understood as the most grandiose gesture of love. So regardless if you feel God's love or not, Christ was on a cross 2,000 years ago because he loves you. And if our Savior loves us, enough to live the perfect life and die a sinner's death for us, we as his disciples ought to be prepared to die to sin and live to righteousness by God's power which he provides and know that God does this. See, this is where discipleship isn't just a, it's not just a program it's not just the sequence of events that happens. Discipleship is an identity. See, Paul talks about this following Jesus as being so profound, such a massive change. He says, I've died, I've been crucified, and now I'm alive. And Jesus, the life I live is Christ living through me. Discipleship is an identity. And so let us receive this identity as those who have been loved and resurrected with Christ. Let us apply ourselves to the pattern of discipleship, of dying, that we might come fully alive in Christ and do so by the power of God, which he supplies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us both the pattern and the power, that our lives, if if they are not submitted to you, they will be, Marred and laced with futility, we had no way of of justifying ourselves of of elevating ourselves to a place of of even being deserving of your grace, but even in the midst of our, our rebellion, our being enemies of God being set against you, you loved us in such a profound way that you took our cold, dead hearts and have have made them alive and so I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people, as your church, as your bride, to live as those who are fully alive, that we would put off the old ways, that we would die to sin. These, these sins that were listed out in Colossians 3, they're destructive. They, they steal life away from us. They, they make life harder for other people. But Lord, take those old ways, put them off, help us to kill them, that we might live in a way that honors you, brings glory to your name. We cannot do this in our own strength, in our own power. And so we're crying out for the help of the Spirit, which you've already implanted in the heart of every believer that would be set on our discipleship and the discipleship of others, that we would die to sin and live in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.